1 Corinthians chapter 1, we're told, if you want a little background, of Paul's arrival in Corinth in Acts chapter 18. So most of us were in Acts not that long ago. Probably remember some of these things, but Paul went originally to Corinth alone. He met there Aquila and Priscilla, again, who become good friends of his. We greeted at the end of Romans. Uh, seems like lifelong partners in ministry, so he wasn't there alone too long. Silas and Timothy met him not long after that. And uh, no doubt the city was an important city. It was a central place for Roman government and also for Greek commerce. Supposedly a pretty large city. People guess that there could have been up to 200,000, they'll say, freemen and 400,000 slaves in the city, various levels. Uh, so a large city. There was also, uh, in terms of uh, so much merchant enterprise there, as it had different ports, that there was always people from all over coming in and out. So certainly strategic for Paul and the gospel to see a church planted there, he knew could go to a lot of other places then. And it seemed like his, his basic kind of MO was go to a big city where the gospel's never been preached, establish a church there, and then let people move out into the outer provinces themselves. So Paul uh, ends up in Corinth. No doubt he has been thinking about this place. It was, as well, in many ways, the vanity fair of the Roman Empire. You could call it the Vegas, I guess, of the day and age. There was even a proverb that you could be Corinthianized or a Corinthian man or woman, which basically meant, you know, you were tied to scandalous living. Uh, because that was, that was what the city was known for. And we'll get into some of that more as we kind of go through and uh, we'll cover more of some of the specifics of the city in the letter as some of it's pertinent as it's being brought up. But in terms of timelines, it seems like what happens is Paul plants this church. Then he's there a decent amount of time, a year and a half, the second longest time, only in Ephesus longer. And then he goes away for a few years. He's in Ephesus and he writes a letter back to the church. It seems like that letter was not exactly received super well. And uh, some of it was misunderstood because he has to correct some of their understanding in chapter 5 about how he was addressing people in sexual sin in the church. And then uh, what happens is apparently the church then writes a letter back to him. And in chapter 16, he mentions three individuals that it seems like have come and brought him that letter. And the letter isn't apparently a great response. The church has some issues with Paul now. There are, there are people there questioning his apostleship. And they do ask, apparently, some questions that Paul is going to get to, but he doesn't address those right off the bat. He'll say later in chapter 7, you know, he'll begin to respond to the things that they wrote him about. And in the middle of all of that, we'll see in this chapter, it also seems this lady Chloe and people from her household wanted to get Paul information about the church. So they send some people and try to say, hey, here's what's really going on as well. So there's kind of all this info coming to Paul in different ways. And what he addresses is what the Holy Spirit puts on his heart. And this is what we 
have here, this letter that's to a church that's in various levels of conflict, and particularly the reason I think it's important for us now in this day and age is this is a church that was trying to exist in a world of heathenism. We'll just say the world. It was a church that was influenced by worldly influences all around it. And Paul has to address all these various issues in the church. And uh, particularly in America, this is, this is largely how the church exists. We exist in a lot of freedom, but the battles we face relate to worldly mindset, worldly morals, worldly ideas, worldly lifestyles, and then how they begin to affect the church, the people in the church, how the church is run. Just listing some of these issues, he's going to deal with divisions in the church, reliance on worldly wisdom, carnality, he's going to call them babes in Christ, unspiritual judgment, spiritual pride, sexual immorality, church discipline, suing one another, marriage and divorce, things offered to idols, various matters of conscience, self-denial, temptation, idolatry, head coverings, communion, spiritual gifts, love, church order, resurrection, baptism. There's a lot of things going on here. So, uh, and in the middle of all of that, Despite all those issues, like if I just read that and say, hey, would you want to come to our church? Here's what we have going on. You would probably say, I don't want to be a part of that church. Now, you know, uh, in that day and age also, it wasn't like you could just choose the church down the street. There, let me find the other non-denominational. No, it was the church and that's it. You had a church, there were some believers, and you were happy to find believers. So, you didn't have quite the easy choice, but the despite all of that, I think it's important. Paul addresses them over and over again as God's children. This is a real church, a real church with problems. They're really born again. They're really babes in Christ. They got to grow in a lot of ways, but they're truly God's kids. And Paul never doubts that. In fact, even when we get to chapter 5 where there's a guy sleeping with his stepmom and apparently they're okay with it, he never even questions that guy's salvation. Treats him like a brother in Christ who's in sin and needs to be in church discipline. So the, the emphasis, even though there's so many things that need to be corrected here per se, there's also some good things in the church. And it's always recognized as a true church. And I think part of the reason is when Paul gets to Corinth, he has a unique experience there. The Bible tells us that the Lord comes to Paul by night. Acts 18, verses 9 through 11 say this, Now the Lord spoke to Paul in the night by a vision and said, Do not be afraid, but speak, and do not keep silent, for I am with you. And no one will attack you to hurt you, which probably made Paul happy. He got attacked a lot. For I have many people in this city, and he continued there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. Jesus Christ says, I have a lot of people in this city. 
So these people with all these issues are still Jesus's people. That's how Paul sees it. He, he claimed them from the very beginning. Jesus said, I got many people in this city. They're all kind of different places with all different types of ideas. We're all sinful individuals trying to follow the Lord. And there are things that need to be addressed in our lives. That doesn't mean we blow them off or God doesn't care about them. But they're still believers. And because they're believers, God wants to address these things. And Paul, wonderfully, cares about these individuals. And all of this writing is out of love for them and out of inspiration in the Holy Spirit because he still loves his church anywhere where the church is dealing with any of these issues. He still loves them. And I think it's important with kind of that background, these individuals claimed by Christ to look through these things that are largely corrective in a lot of ways. So... You know, as we go through this, some of that certainly is going to be corrective for us personally. We're going to say, all right, Lord, I need that. And other places we're going to we're going to know others who need those things. Or we'll see places in the church where we'll say, you know what, the church, these areas of the church need to deal with these things. I think it's just important to recognize, again, these are brothers and sisters in Christ still. Claimed by the Lord. And even if things need to be addressed where they do. This is still supposed to be the heart behind it. So that's the basic background we have here. And let's jump into verse 1. Paul, called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ, through the will of God, and Sosthenes, our brother, to the church of God which is at Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, with all who in every place call on the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul, with a pretty typical introduction here, he calls himself Paul right off the bat, called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God. Uh, he introduces himself and his apostleship. He didn't always do that in all his letters. Uh, he particularly did it when there was times where he knew that would be challenged, not because Paul felt like he needed to battle for authority. That's why he says, called of God, or called of Jesus Christ, and through the will of God. Paul knows he doesn't need to battle with human beings to be an apostle. He's an apostle because of God's will. He got knocked off a horse <laughs> by Jesus Christ himself, and made an apostle. So he's not insecure about his apostleship. The only reason he defends his apostleship is because he's defending the message of Christ and the work of Christ that are tied to it. So he knows that that's what's happening here. Unfortunately, again, in this church, his apostleship is going to be under attack, particularly in chapter 9. He'll have to address some of those issues. But he he just states what is true right off the bat. This is who he is, who God made him, who God is inspiring to write this letter. And I think it's important, too, he, he just states it's God's will. You know, in our modern day and era, if anybody had kind of the background that Paul had, I would have no doubt if they went to defend themselves 
they would have used the most sensational things that they could have used. This would be propaganda billboards everywhere. Paul's, Paul's spiritual testimony. Again, white light knocked off a horse, Jesus Christ literally speaking to me. Scales on my eyes falling off and being filled by the Holy Spirit. Miracles, places that I go. My sweaty rags are healing people. Demons know who my name is along with Jesus Christ's name. Right? You could, you could see, who are you to say that I don't have a, right? It would be very easy just to, I think in our modern age, people begin to list out on the back of their books all the recommendations of people who should believe in them, right? Paul just says, I'm this by the will of God. This is who I am. He's, he's not going to battle. He doesn't have to battle for things. This is who God made me. And anybody who's fighting against that is fighting against him. He's just stating facts. He doesn't have to go into this large self-defense. He knows the Lord is going to take care of those things. He throws in there Sosthenes, our brother. The language kind of has the idea of the brother. Now, there's a man, man mentioned in Acts 18 in Corinth. It could be the same one. Uh, we're not sure 100%, but... This man is tied with Paul. Again, a good place to be. I don't know if the church would be particularly happy when he got back there. Like, why you got to say those things to us, you know? But uh, he stands with Paul and the things that are being written. The good thing is he's not going to be ashamed of that through eternity. He gets his name in the Bible. So uh, I think that's a good place to be, particularly for us as well as we go through the letter. Verse 2, he's writing to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, and with all who in every place call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, both theirs and ours. He's writing to the church of God. Again, it's God's church. It's not their church. It's not human beings' church. It's bought in his blood. We don't have the freedom to do whatever we want with it. We didn't create this organization it's not our power that upholds it. It's not our vision that directs it. It's his church. And despite their issues and all the various things that are going on, he's stating, I think, what is true about them. Just like he was called in God's will, they're called in God's will. They are the church, the called out ones. They are to be sanctified and they're to be saints. They're saved and forgiven from sins but they're also delivered from their sins and should be as believers. They're supposed to be a true holy life about them. Saints are those that are set apart for God's purpose. To be sanctified is to be, again, set apart in a holy fashion for a particular purpose. And even though they looked a little bit more like Corinth than they may have looked like saints, Paul is stating what is true about them. And where God is seeking to work in their hearts and in their lives. So it's to them, and he says to anyone, which is true of all saints, should be true of us as well, who in every place call on the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. So no doubt the letter was supposed to be read in Corinth in that fellowship and those fellowships that were together. And then in the surrounding provinces, they would go out and read these things. So it was important for people to know those things. Verse 3, this is Paul's typical greeting. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. No doubt these are not mere words to him. 
I think when Paul wrote these things, it was bringing him back to the joy of his, his salvation. He did not know peace with God until the grace of God intercepted him, showed up in his heart and life, changed who he was from Saul to Paul, the whole purpose and direction of his life. When Jesus became his Lord, he learned grace and peace. And I believe that's truly what he wants everybody to know that he writes to. Campbell Morgan, in his commentary, I like what he says about grace here. He says, grace is ultimately the activity of God which puts at the disposal of sinning men and women all the things that give delight to him. Everything that makes God happy, he puts it at the disposal of sinning men and women actively. That's what his grace does. That's what Paul experienced. It's what he wants for them. And he's reminding them, as true believers, they don't have to work for this. This is what they already have in Christ Jesus. They already have grace and peace in him. It's through Christ. Now, verse 4, he's going to be thankful for another, a number of things, which he does in most of his letters. He has something that he can say this positive about the believers he's writing to. He says, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God, which was given to you by Christ Jesus, that you were enriched in everything by him, in all utterance and all knowledge, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you, so that you come short in no gift, eagerly waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end, that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul's thankful here. Uh, they prided themselves, this church, in a lot, their spiritual gifts, their spiritual wisdom. We're going to see a number of things. Paul has to say, I'm saying this to your shame. So he is thankful for things. I do think he's reminding them where it all came from. Notice he says, for the grace of God which was given to you by Christ Jesus, you've been enriched. They haven't enriched themselves. They've received enrichment by him. It was all through his grace. It was given by God, and it wasn't complete. There was still a day where he was coming. There was, they, they, at one point, he's saying, oh, you guys have just kind of come to the fullness of everything here. And he's reminding them where all these good things came from, although his commendations of them are true. I don't believe Paul ever said anything that he didn't truly believe. I don't believe he was just trying to, you know, uh, make them feel a little bit happier before he's got to say some tough things. I don't think he was manipulating them. I think Paul was looking at them and literally saying, okay, here are the good things that I that I can say about this church. And he says that they had they were enriched in all utterance and all knowledge. They had a good biblical speech and knowledge. Paul the apostle had stayed there for a year and a half teaching them the word of God. They loved rhetoric and eloquence and you know, it's it's a blessing to have people that understand spiritual things and can convey those spiritual things. And he was looking at this church and he said, you guys have those gifts. Utterance, the speech, the knowledge, those things are a blessing. 
It's also a blessing that the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you. They had a confirmed spiritual life. They were different. They weren't perfect yet. (laughs) They weren't even totally mature yet, but they weren't what they used to be. Their lives had been changed. He talks about how some of them used to be thieves, extortioners, homosexuals, fornicators. He goes through the whole, you used to be these things. Their lives were fundamentally changed. The work of Christ had been confirmed in them, and Paul was thankful for those things. He was also thankful that he says here that they come short in no gift, that they possessed a a whole expression of spiritual gifts. Paul's saying there's all types of spiritual gifts working in this body. There was going to be issues in how they work, but he was thankful that they were there, at least. This, this body of believers had all types of spiritual gifts. And he's thankful that he said, you're waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. You guys have a, a true hope. You're not, you're not just hoping in things that are false or aren't Christian. You're really waiting for the return of Jesus Christ. So he was, he was blessed by all those things. And it can seem kind of like, well, how can these things be present and they still have all these issues And the reality is that's just what immaturity looks like. Immaturity is a mix of good things and immature things. When you're in junior high or in high school or even college age, some of us even a little further, there's a bunch of good things in somebody's life and you begin to see it, but then there's also immature things. There's places where kids start to be responsible and then there's places where they're still kids. And there's a place in life where that's kind of normal. And in spiritual lives, the same thing happens. It's just sometimes I think we begin to think if somebody has one aspect, they must somehow be mature then. So if you have real biblical knowledge and you can express it well, then somehow you must be spiritually mature. But just because you can understand theological things does not mean you're actually a mature believer. Karl Barth and Paul Tillich still have these huge tomes of theology that people study and give their whole lives to study, and both of them were as famous for their adulterous relationships as they were for their theology. Just because they could understand things about God in a scientific way did not mean they had spiritual life that was mature. They didn't actually know the truths they were talking about. And you can look at somebody like this and say, how can they, you know, they know theological terms and jargon. I don't know stuff like that. I can't talk like that. that that's not a guarantee of spiritual maturity. Even if somebody is saved, you, you can see somebody's life radically change, but it doesn't mean they're spiritually mature. New spiritual life is new spiritual life, but it still needs to grow. There are people who have radical testimonies about God stepping in their life in really supernatural ways. And you can see it and say, wow, that's amazing. It's, it's got to be true. There's no other way that they could have that change. But it doesn't mean now they're spiritually mature. It just means they have spiritual life and they need to grow in those things. This is a church that was confirmed in spiritual life, but they weren't mature yet. They still needed to grow. The same thing with spiritual gifts. You could possess spiritual gifts and not spiritual graces. That was the problem with this church. 
They're exercising their tongues, but they don't love each other. They're, exer they're exercising all these spiritual gifts, but they're not doing it in a way that's actually edifying to other people. And you can have spiritual actions without, again, mature spiritual life. So sometimes we can just think that there are certain things that if this thing's in a believer's life, then somehow it must mean that they're spiritually mature. It's not necessarily true. And again, Paul isn't knocking these things. His whole point is, I'm happy all these things are in your life. And I want all those things to remain, except I also want a mature Christian life to grow with them. So that love can come behind your spiritual gifts. So that spiritual judgment can come behind your spiritual gifts. So that spiritual understanding in the mind of Christ can come behind your utterance and your knowledge. So that you can grow up in all these things in the right way. And this is a church. They had true good things going on. But just like his commendations are honest here, his rebukes and his corrections are going to be honest. They were to keep all these things, but they had to add Christ-likeness, obedience, love. There was a lot of things that still needed to be developed in this body of believers. So Paul is encouraging them. He's happy about so many of the things that are going on. And he's trusting, again in verse 8, that Jesus Christ will confirm you to the end that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's hope is the God who started this work in this city. He's thinking about Corinth. No doubt he's hearing these things. No doubt he's heartbroken. He knows these people. He spent a long time there, longer than a lot of other places. I'm sure he can think of specific names and peoples and homes. And he hears these things and his hope is, God, you said these are your people. You have many people there. You started this thing. And there's one person who can finish it, who can make sure that they're blameless when it comes to the end, that these issues aren't still the issues that they have. We, in the end, we don't have the story of Corinth, per se. And probably, if it's true to human life, it's a little bit of a mix. I bet there's a lot of people who received this letter and heard the voice of the Lord and the Holy Spirit speaking to them, and they responded, and they grew. And there are probably some that rejected those things. We know when he gets to 2 Corinthians that there's some really positive things happening, but we know there's still some issues as well. So the same comes to us. We might have true Christian life. There might be some really great things the Lord's doing in us. That doesn't mean we're complete. It means there's probably still other things that we need to grow in. But our hope in the end is not that we do it ourselves. It's that Christ will confirm us. He's going to be the one who presents us blameless. He doesn't expect perfection from us. But he does want progress in the Christian life. He wants us moving a certain direction. He didn't expect perfection of the disciples. They wouldn't have lasted a month if he expected perfection of them. But he did expect them to be growing, to understand him, to stick with him, to continue to be conformed into his image and likeness. 
And it's the same thing he expects from us. And it's what Paul's hope is, that God's going to take care of you guys. In the end, he's going to confirm you. Jude says, now unto him who is able to present you faultless. He's the only one who can get us there, bring us to the end, so that we're who we're supposed to be in him. He's the only one who can present us faultless with exceeding joy before the throne of his Father. And Paul's hope is that that's going to happen with this church. And he says in verse 9, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. The same Jesus who appeared to him and who helped him establish this church, even though he's calling them carnal babes in Christ, Jesus owns these people, and he says, here's, here's what my hope is. God is faithful. God is faithful to keep you in the relationship with Jesus that he started in your salvation. You're never going to escape it. You and I have been called into fellowship with Jesus Christ. We could try to escape it. This is the good thing about actually being saved. You could try to escape it. You could close the door on certain areas of your life on Jesus. But you know what happens? He's like, I'm standing outside knocking. Open the door. I'll come in. I'll sup with you and you with me. Be zealous. Repent. You're in fellowship with me. You can't escape me. I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you, even until the end of the age. He says, you have been called into fellowship with Jesus Christ. This koinonia is the word. Gives us the idea of being partners with. Being partakers with. Having all in common with. It's a shared life. When you're saved, I now share life with Jesus Christ. It's like when I got married, we share life together. So when you open the freezer and you see ice cream, you're like, that's our ice cream. <laughs> These are our chips. And then, then that goes both ways. Right? This is, this is our life here. It's shared. And Jesus Christ, when he truly comes into your life, you're in fellowship with Jesus Christ. We're not just in fellowship with Jesus Christ as a group. We are all individuals who have fellowship with Jesus Christ that come together. It's not something that's only true collectively. It's true individually, which is why it's true collectively. If none of us had relationship with Jesus Christ and we came together for church, there wouldn't be church happening. Because nobody would actually know Jesus Christ. As individuals, we've been called into that fellowship. Then we join the crowd and we walk with him, just like those early disciples walked with him. Saved through the communion of his Holy Spirit. Makes Christ's presence. He makes Christ's heart. He makes Christ's word known to us. Paul said, Here, here's my hope for you guys. God is faithful. Who has called you into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ. You don't just have to get a letter from an apostle. Because when I'm gone, Jesus is still going to be there. And 
that partnership that you've been called into. You can't escape it. And he'll get you there in the end. He'll be faithful in your life. It should be shared. We shouldn't battle against it. We want to walk in that. We want to be pleasing to him. I had a friendship has mutual interests, mutual activity. If you don't do anything ever with anybody, you're probably not much friends with them. Mutual goals. There's a mutual sharing of life. That's what we have with Jesus. My interests should be his interests. I should recognize them. Lord, what's your interest in my family, in my day, in my relationships? Lord, what's your interest in my social media, in my money, in my friendships that you give me? What are your goals? What are you doing? What's your activity? Can I partner with you? Kind of be a part of it. We've been called into that type of fellowship. And Paul knows this is, this is the main hope for them. If you'll notice, if you take note, beginning from verse 1 to verse 10, in the first 10 verses, Paul mentions Jesus Christ 10 times. Actually, if you count when he says him, which he's talking about Jesus, it would be 11. But literally, Jesus, he mentions him 10. It's like he can't stop saying the name enough. Jesus Christ, our Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, our Lord, in Jesus Christ. He's just pumping them with Jesus. It's not about me. It's about him. It's Jesus over and over and over again. That's the name that you've been called into fellowship with, the person. Paul knew he was real. And they should have known the same. Now, trusting that, he begins to open up with some of his issues. He says, now I plead with you. Again, notice, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, and there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. Paul is going to address some of their issues, and the first thing he's going to point out is division in the church. And he begs them out of respect. Notice, not for himself. He doesn't say, I planted this church. You guys are my church. I can't believe you would break. He says, I plead with you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, for Jesus' sake, for Jesus' honor, out of respect for Christ, not for him, that there be no divisions among you. Divisions, the, the word means tears or rips. Jesus Christ doesn't get divided into, into parts that then exist separately. There is one body in Christ Jesus. And if it has tears or rips, it just hurts. It doesn't just go become something else. We can get that kind of idea. But Jesus Christ, he's not divided, he'll say here. You know, we can meet in different places, but that doesn't mean Jesus is divided. There's one body in Christ. He says, I want you to say the same thing, that there be no divisions among you, that you may be perfectly joined together. That word joined there means to unite or repair or mend. I want to see the tears that are there mended together. I want to see the tears in this body 
perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. It can only happen in Christ. Think about and judge things with Jesus's mind. Look at it from his perspective. We can always have issues. Somebody can have wronged us. There's always going to be some conflict in the body of Christ. We'll see some of what theirs relates to. But those things only are overcome in Christ Jesus himself. When I begin to think about things and judge things the way that he does. Paul's going to talk about having that mind of Christ to them. And part of their problem is they're leaning on worldly wisdom. And he wants them to have a different type of judgment here. Now, look as he goes on. He says, for, he's going to say why he's saying this. It has been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, by those of Chloe's household, that there are contentions among you or quarrels. There's fighting. Your divisions have, have made all these contentions happen. Notice Paul openly names Chloe and her household as those that brought these issues to his attention. How do you think people feel about that? Now you're getting a letter from an apostle, the one who planted the church, and she's telling them what's up. Paul, here's what you need to know. Chloe and her household. Paul's not afraid to name Chloe and her household. I think this is very instructive here. There are some who in their sin, they don't like it when things are brought to the church or to spiritual authority. And there are some who, when something needs to be addressed, they don't want to be a part of it at all. You can be kind of on either side there. And I know my dad, his practice has been if people write a letter that's critical and they don't put their name on it so that he can respond, he'll just trash it. He won't read it. And I've been in plenty of scenarios where somebody says, hey, you, you know, this thing's going on. You need to address this unit. I'm like, OK, well, let's go talk to them. Whoa. No, you can't bring us up. You can't use our name. You can't. Well, why not? And I like to reference this verse right here. Actually, Paul says all the problems he's dealing with in Corinth, Chloe and the household told him. Because as believers, well, it's very simple what the Bible tells us. If we have something against our brother, we should go to them first alone, Matthew 18. If they won't listen to us, you bring someone else. That helps you because that's, that other person sometime might be like, you know what? No, this is your issue, not their issue. Right? And if they agree, then the two of you can go and address that issue. And if they reject that, then you bring it to the church, the spiritual authority that you're all living together in. And hopefully that church then will look at it and they'll either say, no, I think you need to let this drop or no, you're right. This needs to be addressed. And in all of our lives, because none of us are perfect, we're all going to have to have things addressed. That's not something that's so horrible. Unless anybody thinks they're going to make it through life without needing correction, which isn't true of anybody. I love Luke 17, 3. It just says this. Take heed to yourselves. If your brother sins against you, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. I love quick, easy stuff, right? Did somebody sin against you? Okay, rebuke him. Did he repent? Okay, forgive him. That's, that's what we're supposed to do. That's what Jesus tells us to do. See, if we don't, if we're, if we're afraid to say what needs to be said, either personally or publicly, 
what happens is one of two things. Either bitterness starts to set into our hearts, more than should be there anyway, and this thing just builds up and we keep thinking about it. Or we begin to blame other people who really aren't responsible for it because we're the ones who are supposed to say something. Why don't these people deal with this? And who knows if they even know anything about it? Who knows if the individual even knows that you're so upset about it? Or on the other side of that, if we're afraid to say something when something needs to be said, we become a partaker in that person's sin because that person's sin continues on and we should have said something. Maybe we could have helped them. Maybe they could have been corrected. So most of us, people are just afraid of, I don't want to seem like a Pharisee. I don't want to seem like a person who's, you know, really, I, I know few people who are just constantly going around being super mean to people they love about stuff. Like this is, most of us, our danger is not that we're going to be overbearing in our correction with one another. Most of us, our danger is we're going to be like, don't say my name or my household or not say anything at all and be on the other end of that problem. Here, it's very clear we're supposed to love others enough to say something, to love one another with enough courage and honesty, like Chloe and her house, to speak the plain truth in love like the Bible tells us to. I have found it's just way easier to say something, even if you know somebody's not going to like it at the moment, than it is to kind of like hem and haul around the issue. Or maybe try to act like it was really something else is the reason you're saying it when it's not, and then they bring that up, and then you're like, well, you know, there's also this. uh, It's just easier to just say it. Speak the truth in love. That's what the Bible tells us. And we correct them. Notice again in verse 11, has been declared to me concerning you, my brethren. Paul says in verse 10, brethren. Again in 11, my brethren. We're correcting them as brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ because we care about them. I correct them, but I claim them as a brother or sister in Jesus Christ. And for you and I, I think this is, seems like a kind of a, you know, obscure verse here. But the Apostle Paul is not ashamed to say, hey, here's the person that told me this. They declared this, searched it out, it's true. So I'm addressing it. And that person should also love that other individual enough to address it. And man, if we did that, I think things would be much better in the body of Christ. It is what he tells us to do. We just fear. And it's one of the places where we can grow. Thank God for Chloe and her household that are willing to do this. Send this to Paul. That's why we have this letter that's been helping bring correction to people for 2,000 years. God bless Chloe. I hope she has the rewards for that. Verse 12. Now I say this, that each of you says, I am of Paul, or I am of Apollos, or I am of Cephas, or I am of Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? So now we're seeing kind of some of the particular division. 
uh, we don't know 100% how they were divided around these other individuals' names. Apollos, we know, was in Corinth. We know he was learned. We know he was very eloquent. Uh, Peter, we're not sure if he ever got there. Paul will reference him, talking about him traveling with his wife. Maybe he was there. We're not sure. This other segment is just mentioning Jesus Christ. The guess is that Paul, obviously his ministry was related more to Gentiles. He did start the church there. So people think maybe the Gentile segment of the church leaned a little more toward Paul. That then the Greeks and the more scholarly element maybe of lean, were leaning toward Apollos. That the Jewish element, maybe they leaned a little bit more toward Peter. And then, you know, the Jesus Christ people were the one-uppers. You know, like, you guys follow Paul and Peter, but we follow Jesus. Okay, you know, I guess that's the way that it is then. So they could have been the worst crew out of them all. We're not totally sure. Paul just says, look, Christ isn't divided. You know, you, you can't claim Jesus to isolate other groups in the body of Christ. Uh, we, we certainly, one of the things Satan wants to do is, is sir is in the body of Christ when you when you find a spot maybe a spot that you like and it's there's no there's no problem that these various people ministered to the church but but you can begin to kind of isolate and think that like your version of Christianity is the only version of Christianity and then you begin to then isolate others and what Paul is saying is you can't maybe Apollos and Peter and Paul were emphasizing different things in their ministry and you can't just pick out then something that you like from Jesus Christ and say, well, we're his segment, as if Jesus was against the other segments or something like that. No, they were all to be received in Christ Jesus. Christ was not divided. And Paul is saying, was, was I crucified for you? Did I pay for your sins? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? Baptism is a great thing, but it's only great because in the name of Jesus, not the person who's doing your baptism. Were, were you identifying with me when you got baptized? He said, no, it's Jesus Christ, and he's not divided. How can you identify with somebody and then divide in the body of Christ? Certainly, again, there's, there's no indication that these leaders themselves were at odds. In fact, it's the exact, the exact opposite. Paul's going to talk about Apollos and his ministry both uh, just a, a couple chapters and at the end of the book. We know he's going to reference Peter. We know he spoke with Peter. There, there's, no, there's no inference anywhere that these leaders themselves were at odds, which is sad when that happens. But we don't see it in these guys. So whatever is happening, whatever specific kind of leaders and teachers are being picked out here, people the people who are doing it are just ministering to their own pride. They're just saying, well, this person agrees with what I want to emphasize, so I'm going to use their name or their influence against you. When those guys weren't doing that. And it is a dangerous thing that can still happen today. It's wonderful to have spiritual mentors or examples in Christ, but respecting of persons is a sin. And using what would be somebody else's influence in your own spiritual pride because you think they're an important person and I connect with them, and then I'll use that against somebody else in the body of Christ, that in and of itself is a division that Christ isn't seeking to encourage. And Paul is saying, what is going on here? 
Jesus is not doing this. This tear, this rip, saying you're of this person or that person, stacking up servants of Christ that aren't pitted against one another for your own purposes, that's not what Christ is doing. You can, you can have somebody that ministers to you. We all do. You can read authors, and various authors will minister to some and, and some to others. You'll have ministers or pastors you like to listen to. Like, that's all fine. But, again, to then pick those things and isolate that group and pit them against the other groups, that's what Paul's saying. Is that what Christ is doing? And particularly in your fellowship? Is this the mind of Christ? Is this how he judged? This is why he said, say the same things in Christ Jesus. Judge the same things in Christ Jesus. None of these individuals died for you. None of these individuals were you baptized in their name. And Paul uses his own for the purpose. At the end of chapter 3, he's just going to kind of sum it all up because he'll carry the argument through for a bit. But he'll say, therefore, let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come. All are yours and you are Christ and Christ is God. He's saying, you don't have to pit these things. When when Paul came and started the church, that was God's work. If Apollos and Peter showed up and ministered to the church, that was Christ's work. God has different types of servants, and they have different types of emphasis, and he wants them used in particular ways. He's not fighting with himself when he's using various people. He's like, Paul, Apollos, Peter, they're all yours in Christ Jesus. You don't have to divide over those things. And the, the foolishness of it begins to come out here. And Paul has to point this out so that they can see it. So that they can realize, you know what, Lord, this isn't what you're doing. This isn't what your purpose is here. Now, he's going to continue to build on that. And he's going to say, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius. Lest anyone should say that I have baptized in my own name. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanos. Besides... I do not know whether I baptize any other. Paul says, look, I'm, I'm happy I didn't baptize a bunch of you guys. He names Crispus and Gaius. They were probably some of the early converts there. And then he kind of thinks, oh, yeah, the household of Stephanos. I don't, I don't know. Maybe Sosthenes was like, Stephanos, Stephanos. Oh, yeah, 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 okay. And then he just admits, like, I can't remember if I, I actually like these human things, right? This is the apostle. I don't remember if I actually baptized anybody else. Yeah, but... He's like, I'm glad I didn't baptize a whole bunch of you because then you'd all be making a Paul baptized group and holding that against other Christians. I, that's not what God is doing here. It's, again, even in the church today, baptism, huge issue, lots of division over those things. We know we're supposed to baptize people, but like, what about when they're babies? What about when they're big? What about little sprinkles what about full dunks what about jesus or what about father son and holy spirit what about right there's all these kind of arguments about these things and again people should have their view on those things but god isn't trying to to fight against the other believers who are trying to work some of those things out even if they're wrong if anything he would like to instruct them but this church was using it as something that 
would divide them. For, he says in 17, Christ did not send me to baptize, but, but to preach the gospel, not with words of wisdom, lest the cross of Christ should be made of none effect. Paul, Paul says, he didn't send me to baptize. My job was not necessarily to baptize. Paul had a different focus. Now, certainly, there's some people who believe in baptismal regeneration. You're not saved unless you're baptized. Paul could have never said these things if baptismal regeneration was... I'm, I thank God I didn't baptize any of you, so you're not saved. That, that's not true. Uh, certainly, he doesn't. it's obvious he doesn't understand baptism to affect salvation here. His point here is simply that I, I don't, I don't want to give anybody a, a place to move away from Christ and Christ being the focus. And Paul tried very hard in a lot of different ways to do that. And I think what he knew, he had a direct commission from the Lord to go and to preach the gospel. But if but baptizing people, people need to be saved. But baptizing people is very important and they should make that stand. But I don't have to be the one doing it. And if I do it, it's going to cause some issues. So he could step back from those things and allow others to take that role. And he was very thoughtful because he always wanted Christ first and foremost. And what he's saying is, I, I'm thankful I made those choices because I can see in your immaturity, you would have used that to, again, be something that was divisive. I'm of this person. I'm of that person. And again, these things are important for us today. You know, if you were in Corinth and you wanted to kind of pit one teacher against another, you didn't have a lot of opportunities. They had to come there and you had to spend some time with them and you had to hear them. In our day and age, there's never been an easier time to pit one servant of God against another. You can stack up teachers all over the place that you like. You can do it on YouTube. You can do it on podcasts. You can do it on apps. You can listen to, to various servants of Christ all over the place. And it is very easy for people to begin to kind of find a spot you like and then, you know, fight against other people who are real Christians. I'm not saying there's not stuff out there that's not supposed to be corrected. And there's bad doctrine that should be called out as bad doctrine. And there are people who are not saved that are charlatans. All those things should be addressed. But there are plenty of great people who love the Lord. And they have a different emphasis. And God is using them. God gives them all to his church for his purposes. And we should be careful that we're not tempted to, because we like being identified and having our own wisdom, Pitting one against another when Jesus Christ is not doing that. And particularly, this is a great example for leaders of not putting themselves in positions that make it easy for people to do that. Because Paul wanted Christ always to be first and foremost. So he says, Christ didn't send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel not with words of wisdom or the wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. He said, I didn't come with wisdom of words, specific names, phrases, emphasis, 
that divide people. I didn't come to say things a particular way that would mark me out. Because if I began to act that way, the cross of Christ would lose its place as power. I don't, I don't want people to lean on my tricks or, or the way that I am. I want people's trust to be placed in the cross of Christ. I don't want the cross to be made of no effect. And what Paul's going to do now is he's going to begin to build on that idea that to have done so, to have come in wisdom of words, would have made the cross of no effect. And there's no way that he wants to do that. That's the only thing that will actually unite people and change people. And he's going to build on that argument moving forward. But before, before he goes there, he, he has to plead with them again to recognize the divisions that are among you. Christ isn't causing them. It's not what his heart is. Brethren, listen to me. Where you're torn, I pray that you would be mended. Chloe told me what's up. And she agrees. And she cares about you. Her brethren. She, she didn't have another church to go to. Right? Maybe that would help us a little bit. She cared about her group of believers. It's not like I can just leave this group and run down the street to some other group. And she wanted to see God's work done there. And he's saying, to say you're like on my team versus Apollos' team versus Peter's team, or you're just on Jesus' team. <laughs> That's not what Christ is doing. Is he divided? No. No. That tear needs to be mended in him. Otherwise, we're going to make the cross of none effect. So let's stand. Let's pray. I think that we certainly should all be on guard personally. Those things can easily creep into our own hearts and lives. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how relevant it is. That it is living because you're alive. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, that you're willing to step down into our hearts and into our lives. In the world we live in. And that you're not overcome by evil, but you overcome evil with good. You're good. And Lord, I just pray that you would teach us, say the same thing. Have your mind and your judgment. And then, Lord, certainly we would know your fellowship. That we would walk with you. And that you could present us one day blameless, body, mind, and spirit when you come. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.